0: Welcome to AZMCAST, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head to head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion, or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ring down, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. This is a 24-year-old female brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath, but before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. Vivian Ng is an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine, Associate Program Director, and Simulation Fellowship Director here at the University of Arizona. Thank you, Vivian, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me back today.
0: Dr. Jenny Plitt is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and simulation faculty at the University of Arizona. Thanks for doing this with us, Jenny.
2: Happy to be here.
0: And lastly, Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the U of A and the epi to my histamine. Hi, Brian.
3: Hi, I drafted Jenny and Vivian in the first round this year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. The case, again, is a 24-year-old female brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. Vital signs are temperature of 37.0, heart rate of 128, blood pressure 96 over 64, respiratory rate of 28, and SATs of 92% on room air. So just hearing that ring down without knowing anything else about what's going on, what's kind of in your high-risk differentials for this patient as they're coming in through the board, Jenny?
2: Uh, well, this is a young person, so I'm thinking less likely things like CHF or MI or COPD. Um, things that immediately come to mind are asthma exacerbation, uh, COVID, of course, or pneumonia, PE, allergic reaction or anaphylaxis. Are really my top differentials uh, for this person. I'd also like consider arrhythmia and myocarditis, but I'd I'd have to know a little bit more about her to to figure that one out.
0: Nice, getting deep with your preparation. Um, Vivian, um, how are you getting prepared for this case? Is this somebody that you're running over to and trying to get everything set or is this somebody you'll kind of eyeball as you're walking by to another room?
1: Since this patient is coming in by ambulance, this is definitely someone I'll probably be meeting at the room. Um, if this was the ring down I'm getting on my phone, you have tachycardia, hypotension, hypoxia and tachypnea. Um, I never believe those temperatures. I don't know if they're oral. I don't know if they're the magical skin probe where you wave your hand over the patient and guess the temperature. So this person may very well be febrile, which would make me throw a sepsis on that list as well. Um, but there are objective abnormalities on her vital signs. So this is not, at least for me, not a walk by and go see someone else. I wanna look at her work of breathing, her appearance, her circulation when she shows up.
0: Brian, how much stock do you put in uh pre-hospital hypotension. This patient's not hypotensive, but I also would really like their blood pressure to be higher than lower. Um, does, when you get that, uh, does that kind of raise the hair on the back of your neck or do you say, ah, oh, that's probably going to be fine when they get here?
3: Uh, where we're at, I feel like every blood pressure is (laughs) wrong. You know, (laughs) just how many of these ring downs do we get? They're like unconscious, unresponsive, no vitals. And then they come in, they're awake and talking to you. That's the beauty of Narcan. Yeah, exactly. I I think that the things, I agree. I don't think the blood pressure is a a set like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not 50 over 20. Um, That would be something I'd get excited about. But it's in that middle range where it can go either way so i'm not super excited i think the more objectable things are a sat and the heart rate so those are things that i would just pay attention to because you know they have monitors that are telling them that so it's not like an you know blood pressure cuff you could the patient could be wiggling and then that throws it off or maybe they applied it in the wrong location you just never know in the back of an ambulance i mean things it's tough to put an IV, imagine just getting a cuff on. And if someone's having trouble breathing, maybe they're not cooperating uh, tons. But yeah, I would just, uh, you know, take the vital signs, you know, as a grain of salt, Um, assume they're real, but also assume they can be false.
0: All right. So as the three of you are sitting here chatting about this interesting patient comes in, she comes in. Uh, She's sitting upright, she's breathing heavily with the nebulizer mask on, and she has visibly swollen eyes. Uh, She also looks remarkably like a patient that you saw recently. Actually, you didn't see him. I think it was Dr. Russo, Dr. Mullin, Dr. Campbell that saw this patient. She looks super familiar. Anyway, um, so as she comes in, what's your uh, questions that you're going to have, Vivian, for EMS uh, as they bring this patient in?
1: For EMS, I want to know the circumstances of why they picked her up, where they picked her up. Was there an allergy concern, especially with the swollen face? Um, She's starting to paint a little bit of a picture of allergic reaction or anaphylaxis from that. I also want to know if there were any interventions given prior to her arrival. So with the swollen face that you mentioned, um, tachypnea, nebulizers, or history of asthma, did they give any epinephrine for any concern for anaphylaxis based on their protocol? Um, and I do want to know if she's got allergies to anything, any food or drugs would probably be my top hitter for EMS as I approach the patient and listen to her lungs.
0: Okay. And then, Jenny, as you approach this patient, what questions do you have for her? She's heavily breathing. She seems like she's very uncomfortable. So she's only really got the patience to answer a couple things.
2: I would say. Is there anything you ingested, injected, or taken into your body in the last two hours before this started uh, that may have caused this? And uh, what the timing is, did this come on all of a sudden? Or has this been a progressive thing that you've noticed over the last several days to weeks? Um, and then, I, like Vivian said, I would ask her what her allergies are.
0: So the patient kind of squeaks out, it's about 30 minutes ago. I was eating at a Thai restaurant, and I'm allergic to peanuts, and they, I told them, no, peanuts. I think I sound Not more pretty- like a godfather than a uh, swollen patient, uh, <laughs> <laughs> However, so a patient tries to give you that brief history and uh, you get your ample history from them. And then Brian, when you suspect this patient with swollen eyes coming in, you think that they're probably gonna have some component of uh, allergic reaction, what are, you do, what are you looking for on your exam that's going to help you determine clinically, yes, this is an anaphylactic patient, and we're just going to go for it?
3: I think the, the big thing, I look for two systems for anaphylaxis. Um, and so I'm looking for some kind of airway component. Are they having uh, a voice change or difficulty breathing? I'm looking for a skin component. I'm looking for maybe a wheezing component, so a lower airway And then the third one, or the fourth one, I would look for is uh, GI symptoms. I think that's commonly mistaken in um, anaphylaxis, but if they have vomiting, uh, belly pain, or diarrhea, uh, you know, with hives, that's that, even though they don't have airway components, that would meet diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. So those would be the things that I would uh, quickly look for in someone if I'm thinking about anaphylaxis, and then I, I would move on to treatment. But I think it's really, you know if someone's sitting there with normal vital signs and hives and just talking to you. I think that's a different thing than you know. This lady's, um, you know, have difficulty speaking. And I assume when we're saying she has swollen eyes, we're talking about her eyelids and that she doesn't have chemosis. But if she has chemosis, maybe that's a different thing. Or you know, you could consider Graves' disease in this patient, even though no one's talked about that. But protruding eyes could appear swollen and you could be short of breath in a Uh, hyperdynamic state. Excellent
0: point with the semantics. And extra points for Brian for his uh, yes-no approach to these sick patients that even the residents uh, referenced last time. Way to go, Brian. So um, yes, this patient does indeed have uh, swollen eyelids and not swollen eyeballs. Uh, She does not have chemosis. She does not have proptosis. Um, This is just a generally swollen face and puffy lips. Um, and as we're kind of Do you have working,
1: a swollen tongue at this point,
0: tongue does not appear to be swollen, but there is some uvular edema. When you kind of look into the back of her throat, uh, she's got some increased work of breathing, a little bit of wheeze, uh, tripod-ing a little bit. Um, and she's got a history of asthma. She was intubated at age nine. She's on a bunch of controller meds. She's allergic to penicillin and peanuts, all things that make you a little bit more concerned. So Brian said he looks for two systems involved in order to uh, kind of get that clinical picture of anaphylaxis. Uh, Jenny or Vivian, I'll toss it up to the two of you. What do you look for to kind of say, this is anaphylaxis? Same two systems, do you have any other criteria you like to use?
2: The Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, published an anaphylaxis review. And I, I mean, it really agrees with what Brian's saying So either you have acute onset within minutes to hours. That's one key is really the timing um, involving either the skin or mucosal tissue and respiratory compromise or reduced blood pressure. And some of the other criteria are if you have like a known um, allergy and you have exposure to it and then get hypotensive with a systolic less than 90, that's another diagnostic criteria. Um, And then a third criteria diagnostic criteria is that you have two systems that occur rapidly within minutes to hours, such as skin, mucosa, and respiratory compromise, like strider, bronchospasm, or hypotension, or GI symptoms. So based on that, this patient definitely meets anaphylaxis criteria. She's got the um, swelling, uh, the uvular edema, that's concerning for mucosal swelling. It happened rapidly. Um, and she's in respiratory distress. So I would definitely call her anaphylactic.
1: I'm gonna talk Jenny by referencing the Annals article, which is a little bit higher than the Journal of Emergency Medicine, uh, to say that I agree. But more importantly to say that uh, I think there's some, there's no completely agreed upon diagnostic criteria across all the different societies and everyone references similar things. So I think that's part of the issue about why people don't always treat anaphylaxis with epinephrine right off the bat is because some people hedge about, well, is this really skin involvement? Is this really respiratory involvement? And I think really clinically, we should all be saying if in doubt, um, or if you even think it is, just go ahead and give the epinephrine because that's the treatment pathway. Um, the one thing I do want to bring up for skin involvement is, at least in the annals article, well, I agree with everything Jenny said, the skin one tends to be the one where people get tripped up on, is this really my second organ system? So a lot of these articles reference the facial edema, the ears, swelling, all that kind of stuff, and and really it's not that local reaction to where you had that insect bite, if that was the one, the hymenoptera, if that's what's causing anaphylaxis. If it's local to that area, it really has to be more general So they do exclude local pruritus and local rash at the site of maybe an insect bite as something that would qualify for a definition and they more lean towards allergic reaction in that case rather than anaphylaxis. But I agree with everything else that's been said so far.
0: Yeah, uh, Vivian makes a really good point. I really appreciate that you point that out. It's not just that you've got skin swelling or a single hive or something. This is either diffuse urticaria like everywhere or it's diffuse swelling or it's that diffuse uh erythroderma which is a term that uh just means red skin if you got i was told one time as a med student you have to say it in latin or you don't get paid so it's an erythroderma but really in the case of a sick patient erythroderma is a scary thing it looks like a sunburn just diffusely but really what it is is just diffuse vasodilatation And you've got a loss of your uh, systemic vascular resistance, and it's a sign of cardiovascular compromise. So, in these patients, if you see that diffuse redness, whether it's septic or whether it's anaphylactic, that's a big deal. So, points to David (laughs) for that. However, uh, I happen to be an associate editor for Jim, and I don't appreciate your insinuations.
1: (laughs) Oh, but I just got an article into Annals, Aaron, so I have to go with Annals.
0: Well, congratulate. Did you really?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's soon to be published, uh, we think, but yeah.
0: Well, points back up then. Congrats to you. That's awesome.
3: It, one thing I would keep in the differential here too, it's um, uh, hereditary angioedema. Um, it, you know, it's a young female. She has history of, you know, facial swelling now. So if you, you know, you wanted to ask a question, there's, you know, there's not a lot of treatments for hereditary angioedema um, other than, you know, FFP or C1 esterase. A medicine that usually the patient has, but if you have to go find that medicine, it's sometimes difficult to. So that may be a quick medicine um, that you want to ask about in your early questioning. I know we're going down. It's not wrong if you're going to treat them for anaphylaxis, but there may be another option of treatment. So just think about that in these uh, swelling and shortness of breath. Uh, yeah.
0: Brian brings up an excellent point because that medication, uh, which I can't remember if it's a generic of the trade name, Berenert, is incredibly expensive. It's very expensive. I've given it once and it took an, uh, a very high up act in order to get that released from pharmacy. Uh, fortunately, in our ED, we have clinical pharmacists who are amazing. Shout out to Chris and Dan uh, and Kate Uh, for being awesome, but they were able to help say, hey, I'm looking at this patient. This patient needs this med. Um, So it's not a small thing, but anaphylaxis, I think, is one of those big bads that we all are looking for. But what are some mimics you can think of that might present looking like anaphylaxis that might be something else? So hereditary angioedema is one of them. Um, Another one that I've been fooled with before was a patient who uh, had that erythroderma Uh, had difficulty breathing, but it was actually like a warm septic shock. And we gave them epi, which fortunately still helped their blood pressure. It just didn't last that long, but it gave me plenty of time to be able to put in the central line and everything while we got their blood pressure up. Anything else you can think of that might be uh, a red herring while you're trying to look for uh,
3: anaphylaxis? I think some of the upper airway, um, like epiglottitis can appear that way or a retropharyngeal abscess or something where they you know, they, they were breathing okay and doing okay. And then all of a sudden they get this rapid onset of shortness of breath. Maybe there's a voice change. They feel like they can't catch their breath. And so even though you don't see the rash or, or maybe an abdominal component, but an acute shortness of breath is concerning for anyone with anaphylaxis. And you're not going to be wrong if you give the uh, epiglottitis a shot of epinephrine, um, because if you mistaken you know, maybe it'll cause some decreased swelling in the back of their pharynx, but those are ones that, you know, the undifferentiated acute shortness of breath and the patient sitting up and looking like stink, you know, that's a hard sometimes to, how do we quickly go through the bad things and try to tick them off because there's a lot that can mimic that.
1: (laughs) We both were going to say Ludwig's Angina.
3: I'll split the points for both of you. I'll, the other one I would say is um, you don't see it often in Tucson, but scromboid can appear like anaphylaxis. Oh yeah, um, that's true when they come in. So another, another really strange one I've not seen in
0: person, but I've kind of seen in different reviews and such is um, you can get like a subcutaneous emphysema if you've got like a, a pneumomediastinum or you've got a pneumothorax. If it starts to track through the skin, that can give you swelling of your neck, difficulty breathing. Uh, that can kind of mimic this. It's excellent job. So uh, as we come to the end of the ring down, uh, Dr. Hing is in the lead with a score of 14, Dr. Drummond at uh, 10 and Dr. Plitt at nine, as we move to the workup. During the workup points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So to recap the case. This is a 24 year old female brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath for the last 30 minutes. Uh, She was eating Thai food and developed shortness of breath and swelling of her face. She complains of dizziness, itching and and throat closing, vomiting times two and a little bit of diarrhea. Um, Her past medical history is uh, significant for asthma, being intubated at age 19 with multiple ICU stays in the past. Um, meds include albuterol, uh, for, uh, formeterol, betamethasone, also known as Advair, montelukast, also known as Singulair, and an Epi auto injector. She's allergic to penicillin and peanuts, and the review of systems are a little inconsequential at this point. Um, her vital signs here in the ED show a temperature of 37.1, heart rate of 128 blood pressure of 99 over 62, respiratory rate of 38, adding 95% on 15 liters with her NEB. She looks ill. She's in respiratory distress. She's diaphoretic with a diffuse erythroderma. There's that vocab word for the day. And HENT, she's got lip and eye swelling and some uvular edema. Cardiovascular shows uh, tachycardia with a regular rhythm, one-plus pulses, uh, and a, a delayed cap refill, even though she's flushed everywhere. She's got increased work of breathing, tripoding, abdominal breathing, faint wheeze, and all lung fields and very poor air movement. And the rest of her exam is unremarkable. So having this full history and physical, looking at this patient, one of the questions that was asked was, did anybody give her epi uh, already? So the patient gave herself an EpiPen And then, so EMS did not decide to give her a second one because the patient had already given herself one. So now she's transported here to you. This is how she's appearing. Uh, Epi, yes or no?
1: Yes. 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 (laughs) Points
0: to everybody for Epi because Epi is awesome. And I feel like this is, if there's any reason to do this podcast, it's to drive home that in anaphylaxis, the answer is Epi always 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 and if the epi doesn't work more epi and if that doesn't work you might be treating the wrong diagnosis but uh, generally that's where we start uh, so this patient has an epi pen at home uh, she's used it what are some of the issues that you've seen with kind of misuse from epi pens or uh, you know ways that they've just been rendered ineffective Vivian you just about jumped into the screen with that what
1: I did <laughs> I, uh, in residency, I had a guy who was on the tennis court and he was exposed to some allergen while he was outside playing, he went to his tennis bag to administer his epinephrine pen into the appropriate place. He attempted to go into the anterior lateral thigh and he had it flipped backwards. So it went into his thumb and he was so scared about his anaphylaxis that he jammed it so hard. The needle not only injected the epinephrine into his thumb it the needle got stuck into his distal phalanx bone and Ooh. bent oh. so he came into the ED and we had to treat his anaphylaxis and then we had to give him pentolamine in his finger to reverse the vasoconstriction of his thumb and then i had to digitally block him and then pull this needle out of his thumb cuz just a pull wouldn't work we had to actually like yank with okay. tools and everything to get it out and that there paints the picture of all the things you could potentially do wrong when administering an epitaph.
0: When you blocked his thumb, did you give him letter with Epi? No.
1: <laughs> Good job.
3: Well, you I mean, know, Lido with Epi is fine in, so. in every location. So and this totally is just another example of how you can inject a full epinephrine dose into your thumb and people do not lose their fingers from that. Yes. We had that multiple if you want times a picture, in the military, I have a the ray. same thing <laughs> where people put their thumbs and Marines played around with their epi injectors and did the same thing. And they were all fine. That is another myth. Please use Lido with Epi everywhere.
1: I think Brian
0: is already soapboxing. He's getting there. I'll let him slip that one in because I think it's a good point. This is usually the (laughs) example we use. I've seen one of my uh, previous attendings when I was a resident do this. The attending used to be a paramedic and uh, went in such a hurry to give the patient the EpiPen that he held it upside down. And you are not supposed to hold this thing like a clicker pen. You're not supposed to put your thumb over top. Because if you, in a hurry, grab it the wrong way, it doesn't work at all. But if you, you know, then you can flip around. But if you put your thumb over top, you're just as likely, you got a 50-50 chance of injecting it into your thumb. That's why a lot of these pens are no longer pens. These pens are now um, uh, more of these kind of box shaped, so that it's a little more intuitive not to hold this thing with your thumb over top. Um, What are some of the other ways you've seen EpiPen fails besides injecting it into your thumb, or if you're the person administering the EpiPen, injecting it into you instead of into the anaphylactic patient?
3: I've seen it where if you don't, like some of them will have a cap on one end, that if you don't remove the cap, it's kind of the safety cap that doesn't allow the pressure device to go. So if you never take the cap off, the needle never comes out and people keep banging it up against their thigh. And you're like, well, we, we got to take the cap off. But uh, I've seen that before. It's kind of funny.
2: I haven't actually seen this, but I imagine that you have to hold it to your thigh for a yeah. few seconds. Then usually hear the click and then wait for the medication to go in. So I could easily see somebody not, they just poke it in and pull it out and not give it time for the medication to actually get in to the uh, muscle.
0: Yeah, what we what we usually recommend when you're teaching people to use an EpiPen if they've never had it before you teach them the don't put your thumb over top and you teach them to hold it for a 10 count if they can. Um, Now the needle doesn't need to stay in for the 10 count per se, but if you jab it real quick and pull it out then the Epi just kind of sprays and it doesn't necessarily get the full dose
3: into the patient's leg. And we do the lateral thighs so, because it's one of the places that has very little sub-Q uh, fat in most people. So you can get it an intramuscular uh, dose and it's easier than other parts of the body and there's very low downsides in terms of vessels. So if we you know we used to treat this with subcutaneous epi, but with epi pens, we still show intramuscular. And so now everyone does intramuscular.
0: Yeah, intramuscular definitely has better efficacy than sub-Q. Um, You can go through clothes if you need to, uh, depending on how bulky they are. If they're skinny jeans, you can go through. If they're sweatpants or something heavier, maybe not so much, it's worth just kind of getting it down. But you can go through clothes if you need to administer the EpiPen. Um, Now in the hospital, that's in the field. In the hospital setting, we tend to like to be cleaner about stuff. Um, And so we can try to get them off real quick and then get the patient covered. If you do have one of those patients that has some extra sub-Q tissue around that vastus lateralis muscle, you might need to get a little bit deeper to get the medication into the muscle. So I have on a couple of occasions uh, given uh, my epinephrine uh, that we've drawn up in the ED through a spinal needle in order to make sure it actually got down there. Uh, It wasn't a big spinal needle, but it was enough that uh, we knew that the regular needle wasn't going to get there. Um, And so that's a consideration, but that's anecdotal to me. And that's points to all of you for doing an epinephrine job. Um,
1: Do you guys know how many doses of epinephrine are actually in a single adult epinephrine pen? It's not one.
2: I went with two, but I'm wrong. I wouldn't have guessed two as well if it wasn't one.
1: There are five to six dose, full doses of epinephrine in an epine pen auto injector. So if you actually break it apart, and look at it, the total volume is more than one or two. You can actually, if you do it right, you can try to crack it open and reset the injector. But we talk about this in wilderness medicine actually because if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you have some of it's anaphylaxis and you have materials, just like you were saying, Erin, you can actually break open the epi once it's been used and actually pull up the epinephrine out of it and use it
3: as a repeat dose if you have to. Is that why the drug companies charge three hundred dollars for the pen? That
1: may be why. I'm not sure about that. That's a speculation. But yes, EpiPen copyright uh, patent here.
2: <laughs> it just blew my mind, Viv.
0: It sounds like uh, trying to crack open an EpiPen. You said it's going to be really difficult to do when you're tremulous. It's actually not. <laughs> so, uh, so we've got Epi. Epi is the hallmark of what we're going to do. So, I have a couple scenarios, and you let me know if this is going to preclude you from giving Epi. Uh, so, one of the scenarios is going to be you have a little old lady that seems like she's got anaphylaxis um, and uh, she's got a history of stents and coronary artery disease, but she's got swollen lips and she's got a known trigger. Does she get Epi?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Points all around. Because. When she's in this state of shock, she's getting a type two and STEMI while she's not perfusing her coronaries. And so what's amazing in patients that have anaphylaxis is when you give them epinephrine, their heart rate goes down because they're typically in a state of shock. And so you actually have help add to that SVR and their heart doesn't have to pump as fast. So even in old people, if they truly have anaphylaxis, this epi is going to be to their benefit And you don't have to be as concerned about the side effect of, well, maybe this is going to give them a STEMI. Now, you don't want to give them one milligram IV push like you're in a code, uh, but you do want to give them the epi. I'll follow
3: that on. There's actually a good article in 2012 from Jim from Kroll that talks about this. And uh, there's actually five cases of STEMI from anaphylaxis treated with epinephrine and they followed. And none of those patients had any death, and none of them had any residual disease. So there's evidence to show that these patients don't have um, injury from you giving them epi for an anaphylaxis. And I'll give another shout out for, do you know what an um, MI caused by anaphylaxis is called?
0: If this is a joke, you're going to get lots of points. What is it?
3: No, it's called Kunis syndrome, K-O-U-N-I-S. So Kounis syndrome is actually an MI caused from the vasoconstriction of anaphylaxis. And that is a more common event than a STEMI given by epinephrine. So even more evidence that you should give epi to all these old people, even if you're concerned, you are A-OK. Yeah,
2: there's no absolute contraindications to epi, especially when it comes to anaphylaxis. And there there is um, a study by Campbell et al that showed really with the IM epi, that's actually pretty safe. And that's what we're using for anaphylaxis because it tends to be better than the IV epi. Um, most dosing errors and cardiovascular complications came from bolus dosing um, epi. Which I thought was interesting because typically I'll do once you know they've gotten a couple doses of IM Epi. I've have done push dose Epi while waiting for the Epi drip or mixing up the Epi drip. Um, but you know it's recommended actually if they're not responding to IM Epi after a couple of doses, um, to start a continuous infusion of epi rather than doing bolus dosing of epi. And there's very, very few cardiovascular complications with that even in patients that have underlying coronary artery disease.
0: I'm pretty sure I've signed one of those patients out to Vivian, it sounds like the kind of patient I've signed out of a patient that was anaphylactic but then not getting any better. And so um, as we give the epi, that's the first thing we're kind of waiting on it takes a little bit to have effect. It's not like naloxone, where it's going to, you know, suddenly they're going to wake up and start breathing and say, hey, thanks, doc, I'd like to go. It does take a little bit.
1: I think we should talk very briefly about when you can repeat epi. So um, this young lady gave herself epinephrine when she was at home and then came inside. So I'd say you probably have passed that time period. But most literature actually quotes five to 15 minutes of IM before you can give a repeat dose. I, I don't know if that's gonna come up on this call, but really wanna be clear that people, I think, delay that second dose of epinephrine probably a little too long, even though the patient is clinically still in anaphylaxis. So when you talk about anaphylactic shock, which is what Jenny brought up as far as epidrip, shock is the component defined by the hypotension. So you wanna reverse that physiology as quickly as possible. Um, and I bring it up now because adjuncts kinda of don't matter. Um, they're all delayed onset, you know, the steroids are delayed onset. The antihistamines are to make the erythroderma better, um, the itching better, but they are not the treatment um, pathway that needs to happen with anaphylaxis. So people just need to give more Epi if in doubt.
3: And I would recommend with that too, you know, in the ER, we shouldn't be using Epi pens. You should get the one milligram uh, vial of Epi. It's super cheap, it's not expensive. And if you break open that, one milligram vial, depending on what you want to give as your dose, because it's recommended you can do 0.3 to 0.5 IM. Um, now an EpiPen is 0.3, and an EpiPen Junior is 0.15. So those are set doses, but you could, you know, if you're more concerned, maybe you're going to go to a 0.5 in someone versus a 0.3. But if you use that um, small vial of epinephrine, you're going to have two to three doses. So you can draw up one, give it, and then while you're waiting for, as Vivian said that, five, 15 minutes when you want to repeat, you can have your second dose drawn up without sending the nurse or someone back to the Pyxis. You know, they're right there at bedside uh, with the medicine. And and my question for the group was, you know, we're talking about epinephrine. I wondered what RCTs you guys have to say that epinephrine is a good uh, drug for this uh, condition.
1: And zero RCTs. You can't RCT this. It's there is no equipoise, Brian Drummond.
3: You're, you're actually right. In you 2008, that, there's a Cocker interview that came out that said there are no RCTs for uh, anaphylaxis. <laughs> and because of that, because we're at an ethical dilemma, these are certain studies that we have. Uh, you know, we can't run certain studies for certain medical conditions. Uh, because of where we are society-wise today and what we think are best treatment options for. So this is, you know, you could go back and say, well, where's the evidence-based medicine for anaphylaxis? And you won't find an RCT uh, for this, but you still should give it, (laughs) even though there is not said article.
2: I was going to agree with what Viv said about the adjuncts, but there's also a Cochrane review on glucocorticoids that found no evidence for their effect- effectiveness in anaphylaxis. But I think with this patient, um, actually, you know, steroids and bronchodilators are going to be helpful because of her asthma. I mean, she also has severe asthma. So I think they might actually help her um, with bronchospasm um, and that, but there's not actually evidence showing that it really mitigates the biphasic reaction. It's just something that we've extrapolated from acute asthma exacerbations. And like Vivian said, all the other adjuncts that we give like diphenhydramine or um, H2 blocker or antihistamines like famotidine, those really are just helping your skin symptoms. They're not gonna help you with the hypotension or shock or relieve the upper lower airway obstruction. So one thing I would give this patient is fluids. So you
1: have a distributive shock, potentially cardiovascular shock as well, um, with some obstruction depending on the physiology here, and the insensible loss is due to the tachypnea. So you already have um, some questionable hypertension in this patient, but a lot of patients present an anaphylactic shock and you do need to support their blood pressure with fluids um, until that distributive shock is reversed. And they're breathing off a lot of their moisture. So you also wanna take away the component of dehydration.
0: So next steps, uh, we've got the meds in, we're doing some of this stuff. Nurses get an IV because that's what we do. We're gonna get some fluids. Any role for labs or imaging in an anaphylactic patient?
2: I think we need an immediate no. tryptase level. Triptase level. <laughs> Does that
1: even come back or is that a send out Dr. Plitt?
2: I, I have no idea, I'm sure it's a send out. Like everything I can read basically, I don't think any labs are really gonna helpful. Like maybe I would get a VBG in this patient just because of her asthma and just see um, how she's doing and trend that. But yeah, uh, I don't think any other labs are really that that helpful in in anaphylaxis. They The allergist would say to get a tryptase level but I don't think it's an emergency medicine lab.
3: So so we shouldn't be doing like fecal occult blood because she's bleeding from her GI tract, from the swelling, from her anaphylaxis. I mean, I yeah. I, I was told to do that on these patients, Doctor Plittening. The one.
0: <laughs> You so said. I would argue it would be in a patient who's not improving, maybe a chest x-ray is worth getting yeah. to kind of look for some other stuff. So if this patient doesn't improve, you've given the epi, you've given all the adjuncts, you've given the steroids, you've given the diphenhydramine, you've given the H2 blockers, because now you're just throwing the kitchen sink at her. Um, and she doesn't improve, what are your next steps? It's been, as Vivian noted, like five to 15 minutes later, 15 minutes in, she's gotten all of her stuff. Her blood pressure is maybe starting to sag a little bit. Uh, she's still having difficulty breathing. The swelling doesn't look any better. Um, what's gonna be your next step?
2: I think you really have to think one about intubation. I mean, we're always airway breathing circulation. So if, if none of your meds are working, your Epi's not working, um, and she's just getting worse or not improving and she's having this upper airway obstruction, you really have to start thinking about intubation in these patients, which is a terrifying thought in somebody with upper airway swelling. So if 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 I could and I had time, I would wanna do an awake fiber optic uh, intubation on this patient if I had to rather than RSI because these patients, when they come in and whatever position they're holding, that's probably the best way that they're protecting themselves is just their baseline tone in the position that they're holding their airway in. If you take that away with paralytics, um, I think that could be bad. So if I had time, I would do a fiber optic awake intubation. And then the other adjuncts you could try are other vasopressors. There's even methylene blue has been mentioned and at worst, even ECMO. But um, those are obviously way down the line. This is like, I would consider really intubation if Epi's failing. And by that, I mean, like I would, of course, like do- dose her multiple times before just like jumping to intubation. If she's crashing, you don't have time for a fiber optic. But if it's like more of like a, maybe a slower progression of her airway obstruction, then I would try an awake fiber optic.
1: I think Jenny brings up a good point about what you have to do as far as intervention is concerned. And I would probably also be pulling out vasopressors pressures at this point with regards to the physiologic component and supporting her if an intubation is going to be happening. But I think we also have to take a step back and figure out what may actually be going on. So this may be a consideration. Did we miss ACE inhibitor angioedema? Did we miss hereditary angioedema? And she didn't know about it. Um, do we try to get that really expensive medication to throw that into the kitchen sink as well? But I think there's the thinking about the diagnosis component so that you're not anchoring, but then also the action component to support the patient for the patient care.
3: Yeah, I I think this, you know, in terms of other, this is where you would think one other diagnostic test. So what could you do um, at the bedside? Uh And this is a patient that, you know, if you have an anaphylaxis, you shouldn't be leaving the patient's bed until you see the symptoms improving. I think that's number one, especially if you're looking to redose in five to 15 minutes. um, If the patient had not changed, I would redose the epinephrine at five minutes if I'm not seeing an improvement and they look scary versus they're not looking scary, maybe I wait to 10 or 15 minutes. Um, So I would go to the faster scale of that. In terms of other diagnostics at the bedside for an undifferentiated shortness of breath, maybe you shoot a, you know, you call for like a soft tissue lateral of the neck um, or shoot your chest x ray that maybe you had waited on before. I think those are not unreasonable to do. You're not taking the patient away. You're not sending them away somewhere. Um, You can do just about everything while they're shooting those two images. There isn't necessarily this, you know, a venous gas that Jenny had mentioned is reasonable, but again, won't change anything. Um, for what you're doing. It'll just give you a state of their, you know, uh, systemic effect, but doesn't necessarily help with your diagnostic, um, you know, cause of what's going on. The other, you know, and Jenny mentioned um, intubation in these patients. And and I would say, um, to be honest, if they're sick, I would not dick around with the fiber optic. If you're going to go, you go. And you bring a crate tray to bedside because, you know, there's two things that kill people in emergency medicine fast. It's dysrhythmia and anaphylaxis. So to say you have time for a fiber optic is going to be tough. If you have fiber optic, um, you know, and then what is your skill set with fiber optic? How quickly can you get that together? You know, at fastest, that's probably going to be 15 minutes. Um, And so that's going to be a lot more difficult for you in this patient that swelling may increase to the point where maybe trying to throw the tube in early uh, would have bought you you know had a little less swelling in the back of the throat and I would I agree with Vivian you know if you're given a second dose of epinephrine in this patient and you're truly worried you should be calling for an epi drip at the same point because you're looking for you know, long-term and maybe a continuous epinephrine infusion in addition to your uh, boluses that you're gonna be doing uh, I am So yeah. uh, they, get, they get scary uh, pretty fast, you know, of, of the crikes I've done in my career, I've done two and one was on an anaphylaxis patient. Um, and so, and when I looked from above, there was nothing. Like it looked like ground beef. You couldn't distinguish any anatomical features in her upper airway. So, um, you know, being on top of it is probably your best treatment option, um, than falling behind and and waiting. So,
0: so let's go the other way. Let's say you give the patient her epi and she does get better. Maybe that one was a misfire. Maybe it was a bad epi pen that was expired. And so you give her the epi and now it's better. Lips are better. Uh, heart rate and blood pressure are better, breathing is better, erythroderma gone, how long are we watching this patient for to determine does she need to be admitted or does she need to be discharged?
1: An arbitrarily decided amount of time per provider.
0: I will I will give you points unless someone can come up with a non-arbitrarily uh, <laughs> period of time to watch.
3: Like an hour. <laughs> One, hour. One hour. <laughs> I'm a one-hour person. Where does that come from, Brian? That came from I want them out of my ER and they should be improving. Um, And that gives them time to kind of come like a one-hour period from once someone goes from an acute to improvement works for a lot of things. Just in terms of like you finish the sedation, they're usually awake in an hour. You know, you finish splinting them. And you're getting their crutches and discharged they're usually good to go in an hour um, so it's an arbitrary uh, number but if if you said that her skin went back to normal her lips and swelling are better she has no trouble breathing um, i would give her an hour to kind of catch her breath and then maybe have her sip a little water while i'm writing up her prescriptions and coming up with the follow-on plan for her so to me it's mm-hmm. kind of a little bit of mental recovery because this patient was in extremis. So my guess is, you know, she's going to like, whoa, you know, she's just tripping out. And so it's going to take her at least, you know, most people 30 minutes to really um, come back to a normal mental state where you're going to be able to hold a rational conversation as opposed to like, I'm dying, I can't breathe. Um, And it gives you that period of time to get your stuff together and make sure that they have truly improved in that period of time. And have not
2: developed new
1: symptoms.
2: I have another arbitrary number. I usually observe them for three to four hours after I've given epi, Uh, but again, you know, there's really not literature recommending any specific observation timeframe. Like Vivian said, everything really says, it's like in the Journal of Emergency Medicine and the, World of Allergy Organization journal in 2015, they basically just said to individualize your observation period per patient. There, I think a there lot was, of providers
1: um, pick this three to four ahead, hour ahead. range because of the half, I'm sorry. I think a lot of people pick the three to four hour range uh, because of the half-life of epinephrine. That's sort of classically what we teach for racemic epinephrine for for kids. Um, but it also has to do with the fact that it can cause tachycardia, arrhythmias, and chest pain. Um, now, since this is anaphylaxis, your heart rate should be coming down because you're reversing the physiology, but you know, you kind of brought up the patient, elderly patient with CAD, they may have a type two and semi. So some people will opt to do huh. a longer observation for those reasons, but again, that's provider dependent and an arbitrarily decided number because of the comfort level of that provider and the patient. But I'm on the, I'm on the Drummond train for this one. I tend to observe them a little bit on the shorter side, as long as they remain asymptomatic. And I think that's the crux is they have to be asymptomatic.
3: Well, and if you look for where this stuff comes from. So I didn't, I did go down the rabbit hole in this before. So like I, I grew up with four hours. That's what I was taught as a resident and four hours. And they said, well, where's that coming from? And that came from Tintinelli in 2004 in our book, it said four hour observation. So that's like, oh, well, if the textbook says four hours, why are they saying four hours? Well, they quoted a 1997 Brady article that said, well, you gotta keep them for four hours. And that was based on, well, there was two, it's like 67 patients and two biphasic reactions. And then they said, you may have to keep them for a prolonged period of time. So then they quoted a Stark article from 1986 and you look at the stark article and it had very few patients it only had 25 and they said well this IgE response can be between four and eight hours and you're like okay well where are they quoting that from well they go to a 1984 papa article and papa comes back because they had three patients and these three patients had biphasic reactions between three and four hours and so and they even quote that biphasic reactions were not well documented in the literature, but that we should possibly watch these for prolonged periods of time. So when you start to go down the rabbit hole of where these numbers um, come up from, that you know it's usually a couple patients that someone wrote about and then it's carried on in our medical myth of literature and then it becomes standard and people are like, well, you've got to hold them for this period of time. And you know we could go into the epinephrine and croup as well, Vivian. That's a totally separate, you know, and how long you watch for those. But it's you know these prolonged waiting periods. Um, it's really not based in much evidence. So. Hey anyway, Brian. I, I rabbit hole.
1: Hey Brian, tell me about your PO challenges.
0: No, 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 no. This is, <laughs> is on Vivian loses points for that one. You're putting them off the wrong end.
1: <laughs> so. I have lost this battle today.
0: So, there, I think we all have what, what Brian demonstrates here is what I really hope that people take away from any of these podcasts we do, which is you can get any idiots with a microphone to say and regurgitate what they were taught in medical school and residency. But some of this stuff is not hard and fast dogma, this is a lot of stuff that's built on either opinion or studies on 16 people that were done in the 50s. So some of this stuff, if you really wanna look into it, it gets carried on as dogma, but the literature is not strong or not there at all. Now, there is a study uh, that was published in Annals, it was a retrospective review from Canadia, about 500 anaphylactic patients, and they looked to see who bounced back. They had 185 bounce backs within a week, Uh, Only five of them were clinically significant. And of the two patients that actually bounced back with anaphylaxis, they bounced back within three and a half hours of their index visit. So that lends a little bit to maybe if you've got truly bad anaphylaxis, we're going to watch a little bit more. But it also says that two out of almost 500 patients had clinically significant anaphylactic reactions and bounced back to the EV. So it's very low.
3: Is that the 2014 Grinot article? That is. And just to be clear, the
1: way they define a bounce back or biphasic reaction is a person who had anaphylaxis who has completely resolved and then developed new symptoms that met the criteria of another reaction without a new um, exposure to whatever the inciting factor was. So that's how they they define a true biphasic reaction.
3: Right, and that, that's the largest article on biphasic reactions that I know of to date. Um, and so in, you know, in the times that they had their biphasic reactions as Aaron said, we're with it, there's only two of them in 500 patients. They were both within uh, a three hour period. One was within 15 minutes and um, the other ones which were quasi allergic went up to 143 hours in that article so you can imagine holding someone from two hours to two weeks doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, for these patients but the other takeaway is from this of those patients none of them died none of them required hospitalizations when they came back guess what they got another dose of epi and then they went home oh my gosh you know and so one of the things when we think about biphasic reactions i think is what are we, you know, if you sent someone home without an EpiPen, they're at a higher risk of a biphasic reaction just by, you know, the law of karma and <laughs> however else you want to say uh, good luck. But if you've empowered them and given them an EpiPen to go home with, you have allowed them to treat said next biphasic reaction if you are worried about it, uh, as opposed to, you know, preserving their stay in the ER longer and your wait times continue to go up. So yeah,
0: don't fear the biphasic reaction, please. So at the end of the workup, uh, we have Dr. uh, Drummond in a commanding lead with his evidence-based tirade with a score of 46. Uh, Dr. Plitt at uh, second and 31 and Dr. Ng at 28. So Dr. Plitt and Dr. Drummond are gonna move on to the dispo. During the DISPO, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. So coming back from the dispo, this is a 24-year-old female that very clearly has anaphylaxis. Um, You did not really need to get any meds or imaging for her. Um, After your treatment, uh, the patient has improved work of breathing and air movement. You monitor her uh, for your unspecified period of time as you see fit and she remains stable and she wants to go home. So Dr. Plitt, uh, please uh, describe as me, the patient, what your discharge instructions would be in order for her to go home.
2: All right. Well, hi there, little Jenny. Um, I'm concerned that when you came in, you had a really severe allergic reaction that we call anaphylaxis that can be deadly. Sounds like you're eating Thai food when this happened and you're allergic to peanuts. A lot of Thai food, just so you know, has peanuts in it. And the most important thing that you can do is avoid any food that has peanuts or uh, any, any Thai food in future since we're not sure that that's exactly what the trigger was. Um, we're gonna give you an EpiPen to go home with and uh, I wanna sh- tell you how to use that. So you need to place the orange end of the um, EpiPen near your upper outer thigh. You're gonna remove the blue safety cap and then you just swing it and push that injector into your thigh until you hear a click Um, and keep holding it onto your thigh uh, for at least three seconds. And then after that, you can remove it, massage it into your thigh. And then I want you to call 911. And if you develop any similar symptoms, uh, like difficulty breathing uh, in the future, hives, feeling like your throat's closing or that you're gonna pass out, if your face gets swollen, be concerned about anaphylaxis, use your EpiPen right away and call 911. Um, it's also really important that you see an allergist uh, to determine you know, the exact cause of your anaphylaxis and to get good follow-up um, and further treatment in the future.
0: Um, am I gonna get steroids to go home with?
2: You know, I don't think you need uh, steroids to go home with. The EpiPen is really the most important thing for your treatment. Oh.
0: Okay, um, should I, I have asthma, should I still take all my other medications the way that I should, the way that I have Yes, it?
2: yes. In fact, actually I changed my mind. I'm gonna give you some steroids to go home with with your asthma because you did come in and we're having you know, some uh, wheezing and bronchospasm. So I would recommend keeping using your inhaler at home and I'll also give you a, a steroid dose pack because of your asthma. Okay,
0: well, I, I, I appreciate, it. I trust you because you're willing to kind of listen to me and because your name is Jenny too, and that makes me feel better about my provider. So, all right, and she's on her way out. So Dr. Drummond, uh, in your scenario, your timeline, uh, this patient uh, started to maybe improve a little bit with her epi, uh, but 30 minutes later, uh, she's really starting to feel a full return of her symptoms, including facial swelling, difficulty breathing, and some urticaria. So you readminister her epinephrine and you decide to admit her. Is she going ICU, floor, step down and uh, go ahead and make the call and page it out whenever you're thinking?
3: Did she improve after that re she, um, uh,
0: she improves a little bit. She's still got facial swelling. She's, uh, her sats are fine. Her blood pressure is okay, but she's still symptomatic and having trouble breathing. Uh, she says it feels more like her asthma at this point but her lips are still swollen and she's having some trouble
3: swallowing. Well, you're giving me a tweener case. Um, Let's, uh, oh, I'll sell this to the ICU. Okay, all right. Hi, I'm Jared Mosier and you're not. Uh, Hey, Dr. Mo. hey Jared, what's going on? So I have this uh, 24 year old female with uh, anaphylaxis um, that's having difficulty and not really clearing. Um, she has a, she's an atopic kind of persona. She's had asthma, has had recent exacerbation uh, here and had some peanuts that are probably the trigger. Uh, took her own EpiPen at home, had swelling of her face, diffuse erythroedema, and also had some uh, belly symptoms uh, of her GI tract. She got fluids uh, here as well. Had to get re-dosed with a second dose of steroids within five minutes. And then 30 minutes later, she still had not had resolution, started to feel worse. She got another dose of um, epinephrine. So now she's had three doses here in the first uh, uh, hour in the emergency room, including her home dose. And I've actually uh, started her on an epinephrine drip uh, because I was just concerned about her symptoms and she's not getting better. And so she uh, doesn't require airway intubation at this point. I think she's just a tougher case and is going to need to be managed uh, overnight, uh, I think you'll probably be able to wing the Epidrip in the next 6 to 12 hours. But that's her story. Um, no other uh, triggers that she knows of.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, you had me at Epidrip. Does she need like continuous albuterol or anything like that well, since she's got the asthma history?
3: Yeah, we've given her um, a 20 milligram neb up front, and I'm going to repeat that here as well. So now she's going to have 40 milligrams of albuterol on board. Um, so trying to keep both going. Uh, She seems to still be with it and talking, but uh, a little too tenuous for the floor.
0: Yeah, she sounds pretty high risk. All right. Well, you had me at Epidrip because they can't go to the floor. So, you know, you didn't happen to do that just so she could go to the ICU, did you?
3: No, I I think she required it after four doses of epinephrine. I wanted to keep some maintenance on her, uh, a little basal rate as she's improving. Sounds like a great ICU admit. Sounds good.
0: All right. So... Props to Brian uh, for uh, an excellent sell. And, you know, you got to pick with some of these tweeners. Uh, You got to call one service and just throw yourself into that service. And uh, sometimes they're in between and they'll push back a little bit and want you to call. But you got to pick one. You just got to start somewhere. Uh, And sometimes if you go, hey, we're going to the ICU, then give them ICU management. You don't need to give somebody pressers that doesn't need it, which I agree. Brian wouldn't do that. Um, but if they need it, then it's kind of a clear cut case. And props to Jenny for uh, an excellent discussion, being able to go back and forth for the patient, really identifying the patient by even calling the patient by her own name. Uh, but I got to give props to uh, Dr. Drummond as the winner of this month's episode, The Art of Medicine, because he crushed it. so,
3: Brian, it's all on you. Um, So I think this is a good uh, time to just talk about being skeptical in medicine in general. Um, We've all been taught things in our career, whether it's been in med school or as a resident or even as an attending, you know, you're you're here at a uh, conference that this is how we have to do things. But I I think that uh, all of us as educated learners should be able to be skeptical and really try to look at the literature and look at Kind of behind the curtain and that's kind of what i've tried to do with my practice in general it's not that you're going to discover everything at once but if you have like why do we do this uh you know for a certain situation go look up a textbook go look up a couple articles on it and see what the references for the textbook are and then go look at those articles you know i think this is a. A great case in terms of epinephrine and biphasic reactions is a great example to show that there's not great evidence for what we do, right? There's no RCT for epinephrine for anaphylaxis, but it's the right treatment, and we know it's the right treatment. Is there a set time for biphasic reactions? I think there's now good evidence to show that there really isn't a set time for biphasic reactions, and none of them are severe with appropriate treatment and can be managed as well. But you wouldn't know that. And if you just want to hold people for four or six hours because someone told you to do that, you know that's not you improving yourself as a physician and you're not delivering great patient care um, because you're hurting that patient by keeping them unnecessarily or doing a treatment unnecessary. Uh, and you may be able to get them home and you know, get them feeling better faster. So be skeptical, look these things up. Um, and you do this over a period of time. It's not that one, uh, you know, it's not that you won't find good evidence for something that you've been taught. And that sometimes happens. Um, But sometimes you'll find no evidence for it. And so you just have to take an approach of being skeptical for everything. And even if you're, you know, attending or, you know, alma matu or, you know, someone says it, you still have to be skeptical on it and look at the literature yourself. The best teachers will tell you, don't take my word for it. Go look it up make an educated decision yourself based on your review of um the literature and what's out there so i I think this is you know there's lots of epinephrine myths out there this is just uh one of them and also you know be uh respectful when you are doing these things so just because someone says don't uh or do this or don't do this don't say you're an idiot you know stop doing that you have no basis for this you know, do it respectfully. Um, And it's even when you're working with consultants, show them literature or talk to them about literature um, so that they can improve their care as well. So anyway, be skeptical. It doesn't mean you can't commit, but you're just skeptical of what you Yeah,
0: And being skeptical does not mean you have to be a jerk. Sometimes it just comes naturally. But as Brian said, uh, look through some of this stuff. We've got evidence for all of these things that we're giving them points for. That's why we're trying to push this so that you actually have a basis of what you're doing rather than it all comes down on you. Because that frankly is a scary place to practice of where you are right by virtue of just being the doctor Um, that's kind of the the thing that will keep you up at night. So try to beef up your evidence-based practice and don't take our word for it. Look it up and see if what we're saying is actually legit or not. So thanks to everyone for this month. We were hoping to do cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome for April, but we're going to have to push it off. And I guarantee you, we will come back uh, and just get to discuss uh, uh, more dankness. Uh, But have a wonderful April, everyone. Uh, It's almost over and we will see you in May. Thanks everyone.